I've been having such a good time um, going through the Sermon on the Mount with you guys. This is our last one in this series. Um, and I want to just open up again with some of my favorite verses um, from Jesus' message. And, uh, and my favorite paraphrase of, of these verses, and they're kind of been our blanket verses for this, this whole series. So it'll be up on the screen, I believe, uh, and you can just follow silently along. But here's what I want you to do as we're doing this this morning. I want you to hear Jesus as if he's saying it to you this morning, okay? This is what it says. Let me tell you why you are here. You are here to be salt seasoning that brings out the God flavors of this earth. If you lose your saltiness, how will people taste godliness? You've lost your usefulness and will end up in the garbage. Here's another way to put it. You're here to be light, bringing out the God colors in this world. God is not a secret to be kept. We're going public with this, as public as a city on a hill. If I make you light bearers, you don't think I'm gonna hide you under a bucket, do you? I'm putting you on a light stand. Now that I've put you there on a hilltop and on a light stand, shine. Keep open house, be generous with your lives, and by opening up to others, you'll prompt people to open up with God. Thank you, God. This morning, we thank you for letting us be salt, the flavor of you to this world and God, a light into this world. You've called us and you've gifted us and you've given us abilities. You've filled us up, Lord. You've empowered us, Holy Spirit. Thank you for that. Lord, we give you our lives this morning. In your mighty name we pray, amen and amen. All right. Next week, I know it's, we're coming into a holiday week. Um, this week, we're gonna be um, Wednesday night. You know, if, if, if you're around here, if, uh, a lot of you guys are plugged into groups on Wednesday nights. This is the Wednesday that we're gonna be boxing up the uh, Thanksgiving boxes for that outreach. Um, and uh, so you can uh, feel free to come and join us. 6.30, we'll, be, we'll have things set up here in the sanctuary. Um, and what we'll be doing on Wednesday night is we're gonna be wrapping um, those boxes up with some Christmas paper and, and putting all of the materials that we've gathered in those boxes. Uh, and then our outreach team and anybody else that wants to on Saturday morning is gonna be um, distributing out those boxes. We're so excited just to, just to be the salt seasoning, right, in Rapid City. And so we get to actually literally be the salt seasoning through that outreach, I love it. And um, I, I just wanna encourage you, if you are in town next week, um, uh, one of my favorite all-time uh, messages that I've ever heard shared, I, I just recently shared it with our staff um, from one of our, I don't know what you would call him, one of our, uh, he's the pastor of Angelus Temple right now, which is the, the founding church of, of Foursquare. Amy Semple McPherson, you know, started the Foursquare movement. And uh, he's pastor there now. And um, he co-founded Dream Center. Some of you are familiar with Matthew Barnett's dad, Tommy Barnett, who started Dream Center in Phoenix. And so they launched another Dream Center in LA, connected now with Foursquare's kind of flagship church. And that's where Matthew Barnett is. And he shared a message, it was in uh, May of 2017, I was at the uh, Foursquare um, Connection event in Washington, D.C., and he shared a message about um, this time that he ran, 
listen to this, Bill, seven marathons in seven continents in seven days. It's the World Marathon Challenge. And um, so the story is incredible. It's so inspiring. Um, I just decided after, I've I've been sharing it for some reason with people recently, and it's just touched my heart all over again. And so I want to kind of do a retelling of that story and some of the lessons that he learned from that next weekend before we start moving into our uh, Christmas series. So don't miss that. It's going to be a fun um, weekend. Okay. So on on to our last message uh, in the Rapid City on a Hill series. 17-year-old Julianne Kopke, I'll see if we pronounce it that way, was flying on Christmas Eve in 1971 with her mom and about 90 other passengers. Anybody ever hear that name before? Anybody? Okay, got a few. Um, And when they were flying, lightning, can we turn down the microphone just a little bit? When they were flying, lightning struck their plane and caused massive structural failure. And so little 17-year-old Julianne, she remembers being thrown clear from the plane, still strapped to her airplane seat with the, the two seats beside her still attached. And she remembers looking down as she's flying through the air, um, past her little white dress and her high-heeled shoes, um, down at the Peruvian jungle. And she remembers looking down past, past all of that and commenting that the trees looked like cauliflower. And then she passed out. And when she woke up, she was still trapped to the chair, alone in a jungle. She was beat up. She was cut and she was bruised with a broken collarbone. And when she woke up, um, she, w- she was unharmed by other, other than her broken collarbone. And so she spent about a day just hiding out uh, kind of under the protection of the chair that she used for rain from the airplane. And then she realized, I'm in this jungle canopy, and I don't think any airplane is going to find me. No helicopter is going to find me. I'm alone, and, and they probably don't think I'm alive. And so in the midst of this extraordinarily uh, disorienting experience, she looked around and she said, I don't know where I am. I don't even know what country I'm in, you know, but I remember two things that my father said to me. She's 17 years old, remember this. Two things that my father said to me. He said, downhill leads to water and water leads to people. And in the middle of this disorienting moment, she said, I'm just going to be guided by those principles. And so she started to walk downhill and sure enough, she found water. As she was going downhill, she found the course of a river and she walked along this river. And 11 days walking in the jungle, she miraculously walked out of that jungle and into civilization. So there were about a dozen other people who had survived the crash landing and they were together in a different space who stayed in that space. And guess what happened? They perished. They didn't make it. But little 17-year-old Jillian lived roaming in the wilderness in her high-heeled shoes. So how did she do it? Because in the midst of this very problematic moment, uh, she had two principles to navigate by. Now, why do I say that? Because I think we can all be honest that 2020 and 2021 have been a little disorienting, maybe a little bit difficult for some of us. And I don't, you know, it's almost like, I don't know where I am. I don't know what continent I'm on, right? 
And so where are we right now in a culture? And there's been so much that's happened to us. Pandemics are new for most of us, right? There's been so much racial and political tension and all kinds of uncertainty. And we're looking and we're saying, you know, are we in this kind of major historic moment in history? Is this a pivotal moment for America? And the truth is, it's hard to know in a moment, but it prompts us to ask questions. Where do I go? What do I do? If you don't have a map, you don't know where you are, but we do have guiding principles from our Father that can lead us safely home. Amen? Can I get an amen this morning? We have the guiding principle from a king who made it all, and he's asking us to trust him. And so that's really what the Sermon on the Mount is. Uh, Jesus is looking at us, and he's saying, I'm a king. And I've built this kingdom, and here's what my community is meant to be, and here's our cause, and here's our culture, and here's our vision, and here's our values, and here's why I'm calling you, and here's who we're going to be along the way. So in the midst of an uncertainty, and an uncertain day, he's showing us, even though I don't know what's happening and what it all means, I know how I can act because I have guiding principles from a king, the king of all kings. And so we're wrapping up this series today, and we get to this end part, and there's a lot going on in here, and every one of these little moments kind of deserves its own sermon in their due time. But today, if I can, I want to give us some, some broad strokes. There's, there's, a, there's a fascinating challenge that John, um, the gospel writer of the books of John, puts in front of his own life, which is simply, how do you summarize Jesus? Like, that's a, that's a big question, right? How do you just summarize? If you had that question, you know, define Jesus in a test, you know, that would, that would be an overwhelming thing, I think, for some of us to do. And yet, John helps us out because over and over in Scripture, he just kept arriving at Jesus was full of grace and Jesus was full of truth. So if you're taking notes, that's our title this morning, Grace and Truth. Grace and truth. Jesus was full of grace. Jesus was full of truth. Two things, honestly, that we think, especially in our culture at large, are polar opposites. They beautifully commingle in the person of Jesus. Full of grace, full of truth. And I think what you're going to see as Jesus is unpacking his manifesto of the kingdom through the sermon, he's going to say, who are we? And he starts with saying, we are people of grace and we are people of truth. So we're going to see that in our readings today. You see it all throughout scripture. Um, in the first half of Jesus' sermon, when we started in Matthew chapter 5, um, there's a few points on how to be people of grace. He's gonna unpack how we do it as we journey through the wild together. He's gonna to talk about how we are people who cling to the truth. So as we talk about the reality that we're people of grace, he, he starts in chapter seven as he's kind of wrapping this up with the antithesis. He says, we are not gonna be harshly critical. Amen? We are not gonna be harshly critical as a community. That's what he starts with. Judge not that you be not judged, is what he said. Now, he's saying, is, he's not saying that we're not to dismiss law in the courts. Um, scripture upholds the, the, the law, the rule of law and culture. And he's not saying that we are discerning about the morality of people's words and deeds. He's telling us to assess people. Um, and and well, well, wow, honestly, he, he assesses people later and he calls some of them dogs and pigs and some of them ravenous wolves. But he's telling us, watch the, what the people say and do and make distinctions on whether or not you should trust them and what they say. So he's not saying get rid of moral judgment 
judgment and your discerning uh, capacities. He's not saying don't use your judgment. This is what he's saying. He's saying don't be judgmental. And that's different. It's interesting, the Apostle Paul and James, Jesus' brother, they both unpack this in the books that they write. Romans 14, Paul is commenting on Jesus' words here, and this is what he says about it. He says, why do you pass judgment on your brother? Or, or, or you, why do you despise your brother? For we will all stand, we will all be there before the judgment seat of God. James, the book of James, it says, uh, the brother of James, he writes, so do not speak evil against one another, brothers. The one who speaks evil against a brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge. And listen to this. There is only one lawgiver and only one judge. He who is able to save and to destroy. But who are you to judge your neighbor? Hmm. So notice the synonyms that they use when they're talking about judging your brother. Paul says we don't despise them, and James says we don't speak evil against them. So that's what, judge, that's what being judgmental means. And so as the Christian culture moves through life, we don't despise or speak evil to each other or to others. Our aim and our words to one another are never destructive. They're always constructive, right? We don't cut people down, we build them up. We're builders. And so John Stott says, we are, we are not censorious, which is a word that no one except John Stott uses, but then listen to the way he defines it. This is what he says. The censorious critic is a fault finder who is negative and destructive towards other people and enjoys actively seeking out their failings. They put the worst possible construction on the other's motives and are ungenerous towards their mistakes. I.e., see Twitter, see Facebook, right? All of our social media, right? This is basically Jesus' commentary on the way that we comment on each other. And he says we are not meant to be critics. Right? This is basically, you know, the reason why he says is because, number one, you're not the judge. <laughs> right? You're not the judge. So you're actually among the judged. So that's the idea for with the judgment, if we keep on reading in the scripture, for with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. You're not the judge. And he's not inviting you to help him. <laughs> and so it would be, this is what the picture would be. It would be like a third grader trying to help run the class with the teacher. No, you're, you're not qualified to do this. Please sit back down, right? And so when, when we judge and we criticize each other in our heart, it's like us looking at Jesus and saying, scoot over, please, get off the throne. Let me take over. He's like, son, you don't have the qualifications to do this. And, and because you don't know what's going on, here's the thing. We don't know what's going on in that person's life. You haven't seen the progress that they've been lifted up on. You don't see the hardships that they're processing, right? You don't know God's intent of how he's working in and through them to accomplish his, his plan and his purposes in their life. So he says, slow your roll way down in judging. Slow it way down on judging people because you are not qualified to do it. In fact, what's he saying? You need to take a hard look at yourself. <laughs> And that's where the rest of this text actually goes. And incidentally, culturally, 
Can I just comment on us for a second? I know it hurts a little bit sometimes, right? We are being groomed to be nitpickers. That's where our culture is. I mean, that's the culture we live in, that, that we can just get online and rage against anybody that we disagree with, and there's a convenience to that because it lets us feel righteous when we see wrong. So I can point out how wrong that is. You're a hypocrite. How hypocritical that site is. Look at that camp, the way they do this, and what that guy said, and look what he did. And we love to point that out because we feel righteousness without any penance, right? So I can feel righteous without having to look at my own heart. Because if I examine myself, I'm going to see my own flaws, and then I'm going to have to mourn them and weep and, you know, turn things around and make some hard life choices. What a hassle. It is so much easier to just point out your flaws and judge those. And then, you know, I kind of feel good about myself. And Jesus says, that's not going to work great for you because you're still a mess. <laughs> right? So case in point... Let me talk about this for a second. This is kind of fun. There, there was on Twitter in the fall of 2020, some of you guys will remember this, a quiz that was posted. It was a big cultural discussion at the time. And, and this quiz, it was about all of the Chris's in Hollywood, all of the famous Chris's in Hollywood. Chris Pine, um, Chris Hemsworth, Chris Evans, Chris Pratt. So if you're a movie watcher, if you like watching movies, you know these faces. And they weren't asking you know, who's your favorite, Chris? Instead, they posed the question, which one has to go? And so people gleefully chose who was the worst Chris. And Chris Pratt won. He was voted the worst. Yeah, he, yeah, congratulations, right? And so thousands and thousands of comments from strangers, they start to pour in on why he's the worst. And they made assumptions about uh, his beliefs, Assumptions about his politics, they judged him and they condemned him. And it was almost like this delicious thing to the culture because it's so fun to judge people, right? And, and then what happened is his friends that actually know him began to speak up. And what Robert Downey Jr. said might be my favorite. Mr. Iron Man himself said this. He said, what a world. The sinless are casting stones at my brother, Chris Pratt. Interesting how he just kind of adopts this, you know, Christian imagery, right? And then he defines his friend in this way. He says he's a real Christian who lives by principle, who has never demonstrated anything but positivity and gratitude, and he just married into a family that makes space for civil discourse and insists on service as their highest value. And then he says this. He says, if you take issue with Chris... I've got a novel idea. Delete your social media accounts and sit down with your own defects of character. <laughs> Work on them and then celebrate your humanness. And that's such a great piece of advice that he just ripped off from Jesus, <laughs> right? It did it, right? I mean, because Jesus, this is what he's saying. All that critical energy that you have, redirect it. Stop the spec searching. Right? Because that's where he goes next. And if you've wondered, did Jesus ever preach with a sense of humor? I mean, we've heard this so many times that we kind of just skip over it because he's like, you're looking for specks in people's eyes when you've got a tree. <laughs> right? I mean, that's funny. And he's, and he's just like, you know, so deal with the tree. Deal with that log that's in your own eye. The assumption there, can, can I just say, say this again about us, family? <laughs> As the believers of Jesus, the assumption is that we're not perfect. 
The assumption is that there's lumber all over this room, specks and logs, right, all over this place. And so he's saying we need to take a look at ourselves. So people that want to, you know, the deconstructing Christianity, which is kind of a thing that's happening in, in the, the culture right now, saying, well, there's, you know, there's a bunch of hypocrites in there. Uh, yeah, there are, and so are you. <laughs> oh, well, you know, these people, they're such a hassle. Have you ever hung out with you? <laughs> like we are all a hassle, we are all a mess at times, and yet Jesus is building a community that says, you know what, let's not be a community that just dismisses and criticizes and destroys. Let's admit that we've all got specks and we've all got logs everywhere, and let's start not with harsh criticism, but with self-reflection. Let's start there. Where can I get better? What can I do? So, you know, what would happen, you know, if, if you really did maybe delete, you know, social media for Sabbath. You guys have been around for a while. We've been making it a routine. This will be the fourth year. We're kind of up to January. We're going to have a time of fasting, 21 days, as we start the new year, just to kind of do a reset, kind of listen to what uh, Jesus is speaking. And so, you know, what if you did that and, and just not even hear the criticism anymore? And some of you are like, Sean, I don't even know what I do with all the silence. It terrifies me. Exactly. Right? And, and what you might be forced to deal with is you. And that's a scary thing. And, and yet, as you deal with you, here's what I love that he does. He gives us a warning, the next verse, about not throwing what is holy to pigs and dogs, which sounds crazy. And this isn't, you know, just let everyone do whatever. It's their story. No, this is more, no, I'm supposed to help you. I'm just supposed to deal with me first. But there'll be some people, when you try to help them, they'll bite you. And he says that you just back away. And there's some people you just got to give them space. They're not ready. But the idea here is he says, you know what? Rather than criticism, we're going for introspection. <laughs> and, and when we go for introspection, we start to see our own defects of character. And we start to see the logs in our own lives and say, maybe I don't need to just keep attacking that party, attacking that group, attacking these people, attacking that hypocrite. Maybe I just need to look at me and improve me. <laughs> I want to make a difference in the world. Well, let's start somewhere practical, right? <laughs> and so when you do that, I love the way C.S. Lewis said it. He said, a proud man is always looking down on things and on people. And of course, as long as you're looking down, you can never see that there's something above you. But when you stop looking down at other people and look inward, that's when it gets scary. Oh man, I'm a mess. Actually, a lot of what I hate in them, I see in me. And he says, and that will drive you to your knees. And then what I love about that is that Jesus, Jesus pivots from there and he, and he says, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock, and it will be open to you. As a youth pastor, I love quoting this verse. You know, there's, there's, there's students that are on um, the edge of some really big decisions in life, and I, I would always say it's the best place you can be in your life to be asking and seeking and knocking. And that's, that's really easy to say. It's a little bit harder when you're standing at the edge of a big decision, right? But it's, it's so true, and he starts talking about prayer 
But he doesn't tell us how to pray here. He did that earlier in Matthew 6. Now he's giving us the position of God's character when you pray. And so he said, hey, you're going you're gonna to get to the floor and you're going to realize your own shortcomings. And here's what I want you to do. I want you to instantly think, but my God, my father, he's a good dad. That's where I want you to go. He's a good father. And when I come to him, he's not going to hurt me. He's not going to judge me. He's not going to condemn me. He's, he's not going to see my hunger and start throwing stones. He's not, he's not going to see my longing and start throwing snakes. That's not the type of father he is. He said that there's gonna, he's going to be gracious to me and he's going to be kind. And I think Jesus reminds us of that because when we analyze our own shortcomings, that's when we'll feel the most unworthy, right? And so he reminds us, hey, we are not harsh critics, but we are humbly confident because we have a good father. And so we're humbled because we realize that we fall short, but we're confident because we have a father that really does really, really, really love us. And so we see our sin and then we come before a gracious God and we ask and we receive and we knock and we pursue. And you guys know me, I'm, I'm, I'm not trying to harp on social media, I really love some things about it, but I also know that it can steal some of the best from us. And so what would happen if you put social media away and replace that time with prayer, you know, in the morning, first thing in the morning, just imagine, some of you are like, I have no idea. Well, maybe give it a try. <laughs> maybe, maybe a life will change, maybe an apartment, maybe a complex, maybe a city, maybe a country, the world. And maybe it's worth a shot. And so he says, you ask him and you seek him and you knock. And what I love about that is those are a lot of verbs. You got to ask God to seek him. And it feels like, am I supposed to just chase him like I'm desperate? And he says, no. He says, I'm a, I'm, I'm, I'm a good father. And he gives us this father imagery. And so I want, to, I want you to just think about this for a second. The idea here is not that we're desperately begging and knocking at the door for God to move like he, like he might not, but it's the confidence of a child that loves his father and has a good father. And so when Lazarus wants a snack, he's my five-year-old, you know, he says, mama, can I have a snack? Right? So the whole house can hear. And if he doesn't hear her, what does he do? He seeks. <laughs> Where is mom? Mama, mom. <laughs> He's going. And if, if he can't see her and the door to the bedroom is shut because mom and dad need some private time every once in a while, you know, he starts knocking, right? He's knocking. He seeks. He knocks. Now, is that out of desperation? Like, you know, is he going, there's no mommy. Maybe there's no mommy. Maybe this whole mommy thing is a construct that I've made up. What is, what is going on? Or, you know, maybe if I do find her, she's never going to feed me. He doesn't do that. You know, I'm, I'm going to starve. I'm going to die. No, that's not what it is. No, asking, he's asking and he's seeking in confidence and not in fear. Do you see that? It's confidence. I'm seeking mommy because there is a mommy. And I'm going to persist in that because I know her heart. She is inclined to give me a snack. <laughs> Do you get it? She's inclined to give me a snack. And so if I keep moving towards her, I'm going to get one. <laughs> Mommy! 
And so for us, he says, rather than being harsh critics, let's be humble and let's work on our character defects. And then when we do that, let's help each other. But then as we're humble, let's be humbly confident in our good father. That's the beautiful posture that we have as believers and followers of Jesus. How do we handle the anxious day? We are humbly confident. I know I'm a mess, but I know he loves me. And I know I'm broken, but I know he's a healer. Come on. And I know I'm an orphan, but he's an adopter. And he's my father, so I'm going to him. That's our posture. That's what Jesus is saying here. And so it's from that place that he moves to. And he says, so, he connects it verbally. So, whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them. For this is the law and the prophets. He says, so as we're journeying together, we're not going to harshly criticize But we're going to humbly and confidently come to the Lord and ask for his grace, which he's gracious to give. And then after we do that, we have the power to be gracious. That's the Christian rhythm, right? That's the rhythm of the Sermon on the Mount. We are a part of a rhythm nation, right? (laughs) Only people from my uh, generation will get that. But listen to the poor in spirit who hunger and thirst for righteousness because they will be filled. I come to God with empty hands and he fills me. And then I bless you. I'm not going to criticize and condemn, but I come to God humbly and confidently. And then I have the resources to love you. And what I love is that now he gives you what's called this golden rule. And it actually existed all throughout the ancient world. And so many different people had said it, but they all said it in an opposite way, kind of with a a negative bent in the sense that they say, don't do to others things that you don't want them to do to you. That's how they said it. Almost everywhere it's stated in that culture, in that time, it's stated that way from Confucius to the Stoics to the Jewish literature. Don't do to other people what you don't want them to do to you, which is good advice. I mean, we give that advice, you know, at our home, right? As parents, we give that advice. Do you want your sister to hit you? No. Well, then don't hit her, (laughs) right? We do that, but it's simple, right? So we do that, but Jesus pivots it to the positive and he says, he's, he's really, he's the only guy that did this. Uh, not only don't do things that you don't want done to you, he says, do things to others that you wish that they would do for you. So my children, you know, will be aware of my shortcomings. They probably already are now, but, but they lack some of, some of the maturity to understand them at a certain age. But when they get into their late teens and their 20s, Daddy's flaws, and some of you will understand this, you know, will become more clear, right? And they'll have a choice in that moment. They can harden their heart against my failures and my role as a father and condemn me and dismiss me for those things. Or they can say, yeah, my dad failed in some categories because every human does, and here's where I failed too. And they can come and share it with me. And as we confess the logs and specks in our eyes, we can weep and we can grieve over stuff together. And then we can do for each other what we would hope someone would do for us. Be gentle, be gracious, and be kind. And I don't know what your flaws are, but I guarantee you, you don't want me to list them all off here if I had a list of them, right? And then for all of us to run you out. So how about let's not do that out in the culture or online? Let's pray more than we persecute. Let's be people who say, I'm going to draw in to grace, and then I'm going to extend out grace. That's the rhythm. 
I'm going to draw in humbly confident to the Father who's always going to be gracious to me, and then I'm going to be filled up with that grace to give it out, to extend it to others, because that's what we want. And, and so our church down in Bayfield, um, we hosted the, uh, an annual biker rally from, I believe it's the Christian Motorcycle Association. And um, I mean, we'd have a couple hundred motorcycles come into town that weekend. Is that the one it is, Lyle? Soldiers for Jesus, thank you. And, and I don't know, you know what, what everybody's preconceived ideas are about how bikers are supposed to act, but these guys and these ladies and their leather and tats or, and you know, hairiness <laughs> um, were some of the most kind and generous people that I've ever met. And I mean, they would take over the town of Bayfield. Bayfield's a town of about 1,800 people. And I mean, you know, it was just like all of a sudden we became a biker town, kind of like Sturgis up here. And so, you know, they, they were exactly how you would wish kind and generous people to be. And so I love um, leading worship and have led worship for a lot of different groups over the years. And, but some of the most passionate worship sessions I've ever led have been with number one, students, youth camps, retreats, and with these bikers. I mean, I, I, they worshiped with everything that they had in them, no holds barred. And I, I've thought to myself before, man, Lord Jesus, let your church just be as cool as these biker dudes, right? Like, wouldn't it be wonderful if all the criticism just stayed out there? You know, but when we came in here, somebody's coming in and they're thinking, and you've heard this before, I shouldn't be in church because when I walk through those doors, I'm gonna burst into flames, right? You've, you've heard somebody say that, but if, what if they encountered one of us saying, hey, I'm a mess, but let's get in there and get healed. Let's get in there and get put back together. Let's let the grace of our Father lead us to dance in the fields of grace, you know, and then let's be a source of grace to the world. I love, again, I'm going back to, I don't know why I was on a quote uh, frenzy this week, but I love the way John Stott said it. He said, if we put ourselves sensitively in the place of the other person and wish for him what we would wish for ourselves, we would never be mean. We would always be gracious, never harsh, always understanding, never cruel, always kind. That's a good thing to be. We are meant to be people of grace. And yet many people take that and go, so we're gracious, so you do you, just be yourself, and it's whatever, man. And Jesus doesn't do that. Jesus, he says, we're the people of grace and we're the people of truth. And so we're all sort of predisposed. You know, some of us love the grace Jesus and some of us, when someone preaches about the grace Jesus, we light up and say, yeah, but what about sin and holiness? You know, because we like the truth Jesus. And the truth is he's the same Jesus. And, and, and in the same sermon, he says, you have to bring together grace and truth. You're a mess, but God loves your beautiful mess, Right? And he wants to provide for you. And so let me be honest with you about the world. And as Jesus wraps out his sermon, he shifts to the truth. And he does it with some warnings, forewarnings about forks in the road. This is how it is. There's two paths. There's two trees. There's two claims. There's two buildings. You're going to have to choose upon facing me. And he talks about even, it's hard for some people to get by this, but he talks about the exclusivity of truth. If truth is really truth, it's the truth, right? You can't just have a halfway truth, it's true. If truth is truth, it's true. <laughs> and so the, the reality is we're the people of grace 
and the people of truth. And as he talks about the truth, this is what he says in verse 13. He says, enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction, but those, and those who enter it are many. And for the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life and those who find it are few. So this is what he says. Here's the reality. There's two paths. And one is going to be really broad. And, and, and on this path, you know, whatever you believe fits on this path. It's really wide. Whatever baggage you want to bring, bring it. Um, you've got some pride, some self-absorption, some vanity. Bring it. There's plenty of room here. And so he says, the road is wide. You can believe whatever you want to about how the world works. Anything. You go. And he said, that's a wide, broad, easy road. But in the end, it leads to ruin. And he said, that there's a different gate that's narrow meaning there's so much of maybe you that you leave behind. And Jesus says, there's parts of you that just don't have any place on, the, on the, the, the world that I made for you. You're beautiful because my father God made you in his image, but you're broken. And some, so some of those broken and sad things, leave them behind. Leave, so when, when you write this, and you're, if you're writing on, on your notes, I want you to write down the broken parts. That's things like arrogance, you know, self-absorption, the critical spirit. That's what stays behind. Leave that stuff because this road doesn't make room for that nonsense. And it's a narrow road here that we walk. It won't be where the crowd goes. And yet as we go, we will be countercultural. And it will be hard, meaning maybe, maybe your neighbors won't understand. Maybe people will judge you. But it leads to life. And some people will follow you. And it's interesting, some people hear this and they go, man, that's just, that's kind of, that kind of exclusivity, Sean, that just seems harsh. So think about it this way. I want to give you a different picture because I, I want you to see this in this lens. If you were sitting in the hospital with an alcoholic who's dying and he saw a doctor who walks in and says, do you want to live? What's the doctor going to say to him? Okay, well, your kidneys are failing and your body is filled with toxins. Stop drinking and live. Keep drinking and you die. There's two choices, right? And so that's hard. That's narrow. You don't offer him alternative beverages, right? I mean, that feels cold-hearted in some ways, but is it harmful? No, he's trying to save his life. So if we are really sick, and if this really is the reality, then man, I, I need to help you get to a physician that will heal you. And so if the brokenness we see in the world is really killing us, what's the cure? It's not whatever works for you. You know, like there's some medicines that heal and some don't. There's some that will protect you and some won't. And these are realities here that we can't vote out of reality. They, they just are. And to deny, to deny that is to be unloving. And so remember, anybody remember the movie Tombstone? Um, you know, so what happens, uh, Doc Holliday, at one point, he starts coughing up blood after a night of poker. Okay, the doctor, the real, the medical doctor comes into Doc Holliday and says to him, your disease is so advanced, you've coughed up a significant percentage of lung tissue, you have to change your life. You have to change your hard partnering, you have to change your marital relations with the woman that you're with. And he didn't like that, so he said, get out of my sight, to the doctor. And then, when the doc left, as Holiday thought about it, he looked at his girl, Kate. Kate was listening in on the conversation, and he said, I, she says to him, I've been good to you. 
as she starts to caress him and says, you know, she says, we're going to be fine. We, we're not going to change anything. Let's just keep on doing what we're doing. And he says, what does he say? He says, you're a good woman. And then she goes off scene. <laughs> Some of you are already smiling because you know what she says. What does he say next? Or you might be the Antichrist. Why does he say that? Because all this, oh, you're fine, do whatever you want, there's no consequences, you just go, it's easy, it's broad, where it's actually, this stuff is killing me. And I don't like what the doctor had to say, but he's trying to save me. I liked what you're trying to say, but you're killing me. You see that picture? And, and, and so Jesus is not trying to be cruel here. He's not even trying to be judgmental. He told us not to be judged. Jesus is going to give his life for this. Jesus is going to give up all of everything, all of his possessions, um, and, and, and die watching his last piece of clothing gambled off. And he's going to do that on purpose for us. And so this is him saying the brokenness that we see in the news, the brokenness that we see in us is serious, and it's a function of love to tell you that there's a new way to live. And the way to live is narrow. And he calls us to it. He says, beware of the false prophets who come in uh, sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. And he tells us, um, you know, hey, as we start this community, there's going to be people here, and they look like us, and they sound like us, and they talk like us, but they're not us. And actually, their presence is not just damaging, but it's deceptive and damaging. And so then he says, but the only way that you're going to know them is by the trees that they produce. You'll see it on the back end, the, the product of their life, and it will be destructive. But the problem is fruit growth takes time. And so that means damaging elements will sometimes linger in the culture for a while before you see it. So are there preachers and teachers that kind of sound like us and dress like us and look like us and do things like us and quote verses, but then they twist and distort them so that it hurts you and harms us and is damaging to all the community? Yeah. Yeah. We see that. And you usually don't know it until after there's been some fruit and some damage and, and maybe some things, you know, grew that have to be cut down. And so he warns us about that. And he says, you watch the, the fruit that people produce. And what he's saying there is when you trust my truth, it leads to a different kind of life. And so if I could, I just want to flip this like Jesus did earlier to the positive and say it this way. He says, a good tree produces good fruit. He says that other places in scripture, right? And so that's, he's just kind of saying the opposite of that right here. A good tree bears good fruit. And what he's saying about the Christian is that we're people who's, who've received grace and we believe in the truth and both of them are lived out in our lives. So we have this consistency of, of, of life and a message and we won't peddle this unapplied truth. And so what the world disrespects so much today, and we all know this, is hypocrisy. You say one thing, but then you live another. And in the context for us, God made us a good tree. So what are we to bear? Good fruit. We have a message of kindness, of love, of grace, and of truth. And that leads us to be kind and gracious and loving and truthful. Amen? People need to see that consistency. And Jesus calls, you know, falsehood here, not just, you know, that they're distorting the text, but it's the context of their message, their character and their influence on the community that is divisive and ugly and cruel. So watch your life and see what comes out at the back end. If it's all chaos, what do you need to change? You need to change the inputs, right? 
And he says, hey, there needs to be a change in your heart and in your life, and then there'll be a change in the activity and the fruit at the other end. And so I love the imagery that he uses of a tree because you, you, you don't become an apple tree by producing apples. You all know that, right? That's not how it works. There's not a fruit tree out there that's like, I'm gonna try to produce apples. I wanna get in the apple game. And then when he produces apples, you know, you become an apple tree. That's not how it works. Uh, you are made an apple tree by God, right? And you, then you produce apples. And so the same is with us. You don't earn your way into the kingdom of God. That's not, that's not the narrow way. It's just you trust in him, the poor in spirit who hunger and thirst for righteousness. And he says, I change you. And then we love our enemies. Why? Because our father causes the rain to fall, not just on the just, but on the unjust and, and the sun to shine on the righteous and the evil because God loves his enemies, right? We're generous. Why? Because God is generous. So we look like him because he changed us. And so we hold on to a truth because it's changed us. And we believe that. And so we live like that. And there's a consistency in that. So what happens during a crisis moment when we're praying for God to make a way when it seems like there isn't one? Sometimes just being vulnerable here, it can feel like, God, are you really going to do something? Or am I just wasting my time on my knees? Anybody ever feel like that? You don't need to raise your hand. But, 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 but then I think about, and I remember his faithfulness when peace that passes understanding entered into my own world, you know, during my own personal crisis. And I think, and I know somebody was on their knees praying for me in that moment. And God did come and rescue me. And I do understand. No, I do not understand all the mechanics of it. Do any of us? No. So it's so hard to get perspective sometimes on days of great loss or persecution or brokenness, but we have principles to be guided by, right? And so I'm going to find that water and I'm going to follow it down the hill and I'm going to get to the place where God's leading me. And so I know that I'm a mess and that I'm broken and that there's a log sticking out of my eye, but I also know that I have a gracious who wants to take care of me. So I come humbly to him, but with confidence because of who he is. And then when I do, I become a force of good in the world, calling people to know him, equipped and empowered by Holy Spirit, praying earnestly that they will be a part of the kingdom that he's building because I want them to know him. And then I'm gonna see a consistency of his message and his truth in my life and his grace in my life. And I'm doing that because that's, that's really the challenge he's giving here. So then this is at the end, some people will come up to God and it says, they say, you know, hey, I was part of some, you know, religious performances down on earth, but I don't know you. And Jesus says, you know, it starts, this is what, what's, what's happening here. He says, it all starts with knowing me. It all starts with knowing him. It all starts with knowing God. And the person who knows me then does my word. You're like a house that is built on a rock. So the houses, when you look at the houses that's built on a, a firm foundation and, a, and an unsteady one, the houses look the same. The house on the rock and the sand, because you know, you'd never look at somebody's foundation when you look at the house. And yet when the storm hits, you're gonna see what they're made of, right? And when a storm is raging for us, that's the question, what are we made of? Are we people built on sand? We're so, 
we have a tendency towards self-preservation, don't we? We think we, we need to do the work. I'm going to build up my life and protect myself and do everything that I can. Or are we people who build on a strong foundation that is never going to crack? I believe that there's a real God and I believe that there's a real son of God, Jesus Christ. And I believe that he really came for me. That is my firm foundation. And he does something really powerful here at the end. Bob, you can come on up. He, he doesn't just end with some advice for us. He ends by saying, you'll say to me, Lord, Lord, and I will let you into the kingdom of heaven. So he centers himself at the end of the message. That's a crazy thing to do. That, that would be kind of like me, you know, at the end of this message, you know, saying, believe in Shawn Michael Shop," <laughs> And you guys would be going, that's nuts. He's crazy. <laughs> And that's what happened. That was their response. At the end of this, it says the crowds were astonished at his teaching for he was teaching them as one who had authority and not just as a scribe. Like, did he just say that he was going to, that we're going to come to him in the last day and call him Lord? Is that what he said? What on earth? And Jesus is like, that's what I said. <laughs> and, you know, then everybody's like, that's nuts. It's crazy. Unless it's the truth. And then he lived this life that no one had ever seen. And that's why for ages, billions of people are keying off of his life. Look at how he lived. And then he died and he said, my death is gonna accomplish taking all of your sin and all of your shame and all of your brokenness that you know is in there. And, and I'm gonna bury it in the dirt, all the logs. I'm gonna be nailed to those logs and it's gonna accomplish something. And you're like, okay, maybe. But then his, he beat death and rose from the grave. Okay, all right, maybe this guy's onto something. And we look at him and say, this, this message is nuts unless it's true. And if he really beat death and the thing that we're more scared of, then suddenly he's got all of this authority in our life to say, you're beautiful in God's image. He's a father to you, but you're broken because of sin. And that's truth. And I know that you don't want to hear that, but it's true. And yet I've made a way and I've cut a path and I've blazed a trail that you can trust me to change you from the inside out. And you can come to me poor in spirit and I'm going to bless you. And you come to me hungry and thirsty to be made right. And I will make you right. I'm going to make you righteous and then you walk humbly with me, confessing your sins, grieving over it, kneeling before me, but with a humble confidence of knowing that I'm a good God and I delight in you. And then as I bless you, guess what? You'll be a blessing to the world, not just trying to not do harm, but you'll become a force for good. So I'm still blown away. I'm still blown away by last year. Around this time, you gave above and beyond fully funding our, this endeavor that we had to build a shelter and a kitchen for the orphans in, in Honduras in the fall of 2020. We're gonna give an update and show some video on that next weekend. But those kids didn't even know it was coming. They weathered two destructive hurricanes and storms in that season. But you guys did this even when, and you know, for a lot of us, our budgets were really stretched. The possibility of expanding the walls of this place where we can grow the reach of this church into the other countries. And so here's the thing I wanna point out. You didn't wait to do good when it was convenient. 
even in the midst of a troublesome year. Because the power of Holy Spirit works in you and he works through you. But it starts by acknowledging the Lord. Lord, I want to build my life on you. And I want to trust what you say is true. I'm confident. I'm humbly confident that you are a good father because you faced death for me and you beat it for me. And so when you say, come, I will follow. And so when you say, uh, you know, I can save you, I believe it. And look, I I know some of us may go, you know, I don't know if I believe any of that. I'm just here with my friend. They promised me lunch after this thing. (laughs) Or maybe you just stopped by when you were scrolling through your social media feed and you're watching that way. And that's fine. Just come back and keep journeying with us uh, to learn about Jesus. And, you know, no one has changed history like this man. And he said that he was God and that's either crazy or it's true. And billions of people are in the wake of a gracious man like that. But if you've seen enough and you've known enough and say, man, I've built enough houses on sand and I need something else, the invitation's on the table. There is a rock that the builders rejected, but he became a cornerstone. And he is building a church brick by brick, men and women who trust him to make us into what we are meant to be. So do you know him? He sows into us grace and truth that we would know how to move together in a difficult time. Father God, we thank you for your word to us. Man, it's life-changing and it's challenging. God, help us to be people of grace in one hand and people of truth in the other. That you would help us to see the culture that we live in through your eyes. We'd love them the way that you do that we'd love each other the way that you love us. God, I believe that if we do these two things, Lord, then we could see a world changed, Lord. So just give us the footing, give us the foundation that only you can give. Help us to walk humbly but confidently into your loving arms. God, you're a good father. (laughs) You intend to do us good. Your plans for us are good. So God, help us to step into your plans even when it seems easier to do things our way. We're so self-absorbed when we try to build up our own arguments and we want to be right instead of being a light. God, you've made us to be salt seasoning, that God flavors to this earth. You've made us to be a light, that God colors to this world. Help us to be that we let go of us and hold on to you. And with all the believers uh, praying right now, I just want to make an invitation before um, I close. If you want to ask Jesus to be a part of your life, maybe you haven't surrendered your life to him, or maybe you're listening today and you want to re-surrender. That's real. Um, I don't, I can't, I can't count the number of times I've re-surrendered my life. That's, that's okay. There's no shame in that. Um, Jesus loves you. He is a firm foundation. It's, scripture says he's the same yesterday, today, and forever. And so that means whatever you walk through, there might be some storms, there might be some hard times, but he is a strong foundation. And I want that for you in your life. If that's you this morning and you want to say yes to Jesus or re-surrender with every head bowed and every eye closed, would you just raise your hand? I don't want to embarrass you, but I just want to pray with you this morning. All right, let's pray this together. Father God, 
I give you my life. I surrender all that I am to you in your mighty name. Thank you for the cross. Thank you for all that you've done for me. You've given everything. And so it's my pleasure. Come and lead me, Lord. I want to follow you with my life. In your mighty name, amen.